welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in. I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Yield Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history. We're kicking off episode seven. We left off last episode in 1770 and the Boston Massacre. Today, we're going to talk about Boston from 1770 to 1773 and an epic kind of party. Before we get to all that, let's get to Kristen and our beer. For this episode, we're drinking a tea-based beer. Mm-hmm. Hmm, I wonder what we might be talking about later. <laughs> we have three different varieties of Owl's Brew Radler, a.k.a. Boozy Tea. Thanks to Craft Beer Cellar for donating and finding these gems. They're all a blend of beer, tea, and botanical flavors. Cool. Are ready for our first one, bro? Yes. What is it? This is a wheat beer mixed with English breakfast tea and citrus. Okay, cool. Mm. So these come in 12-ounce cans. We're going to crack those open. (laughs) This is so fun. (laughs) Huzzah! Whoa, that is different. It really rings shandy. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is this taste like a shandy? But then I get the aftertaste of that tea. A little bit for me. You have the sharper palate, but I thought I'd taste more tea and I don't. Right. I actually think it balances quite nicely on the end. I can't drink too many shandies because I don't love sweet beers, but it doesn't linger on my tongue like other things. So Kristen, we have three beers today, so let's get to the next one. And we should mention, since we're so eager, that these are low ABV. Yeah, 3.8, so. Doable. Okay. The next one is an amber ale mixed with Darjeeling tea, hibiscus, and strawberries. Sounds super fancy, okay. Huzzah! (laughs) Ooh. Strawberry. That's not my my jam. (laughs) I thought I would love this one. I did too. I see hibiscus and I'm a big fan of hibiscus, but the strawberry just overwhelms and it's sweet, sort of like a starburst explosion in your mouth. This doesn't have as much variety, I guess, in the flavor, or balance. It doesn't have a nice balance in the flavor. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Okay, last one. (laughs) Last one. What's our last one? We'll continue talking about these as we sip them throughout the podcast. But we want, we literally each want three open beers. Uh, Party time. The last one is another wheat beer paired with white tea and watermelon. Oh, okay. How summery. Huzzah! Oh, I like that. I don't taste watermelon, Uh, which is probably why I like it. I taste the watermelon, but unlike the last one we had where the strawberry was very sweet and fruit forward, this is refreshing watermelon. Like you're at a summer picnic and you grab a piece that's sort of, you know, white, green, a little bit less ripe. To me, I really enjoy it. And the white tea, maybe because it's so subtle. First and third are my faves. No offense to strawberry, but. That's funny that we both don't like the same one because that's not always true. But yeah, the, the strawberry is not my favorite. I don't notice, personally, a ton of difference between the citrus and the watermelon. Mm, Flavor-wise, I need to take a sip of water, though, to 
balance your palate. Yeah. Actually, this leads into what I want to talk about today with Rattlers. Okay, do it. The genre of beer-adjacent products, like seltzers, are really gaining popularity. Yeah. But the concept of a Rattler or Shandy really isn't new. This is essentially half beer, half something else that's not alcoholic. So shandy is the English word, and this emerged in 18th century England. Perfect for us. Yes, and it's two parts beer, one part ginger ale. Now, a rattler is a German word. It comes from the German words that mean a liter of beer for a cyclist. A cyclist. <laughs> How specific. <laughs> yeah. And this became popular in the 1920s with, you guessed it, bicyclists. Oh, an innkeeper made a bike trail from Munich to his inn, which was also, you know, a pub, tavern, drinking establishment, like a lot of the places we're talking about in this podcast were. And it was way more successful at attracting patrons than I believe he thought at the time. Because one day in 1922, it was hot, it was summer, it was the middle of this bicycle craze. He had over 13,000 patrons, bicyclists, show up to his little tiny oh my inn goodness. in, you know, southern Bavaria. And he was running out of beer quite quickly, as you can imagine. It's a little in. He's not prepared for this. And thirsty bicyclists. Totally. And he started mixing the beer that he had remaining with a lemon soda type drink that he he said he'd like never sold. It was probably way past expiration date. No one wanted it, but it's perfect to mix with beer. The two beers that we like today, interestingly enough, are made with wheat beer. Mm. And this would be what the original German Radler was made with, a lot of Hefeweizen and, and wheat beers in this region. So I'm wondering if that's why we yeah. like those better than the one that's made with an amber. They just, have like a century of proving that that's a good taste, totally. whereas the other one is a little bit different. So today we're going to sip on these three beers, Rattlers, Shandies, whatever you want to call them, while we talk about what Bostonians are going to do about a pesky shipment of tea. I'm so excited about this episode. I mean, we get to talk about one of the most epic events in U.S. history. After the Boston Massacre trial in 1770, things had gotten quiet around Boston. Most of the British troops had been sent out, and all but one of the Townshend duties had been repealed. These concessions were enough to satisfy most in Boston. Lord Hillsborough even wrote to Governor Thomas Hutchinson about, quote, the tranquility which has been happily restored to Boston. It seemed like a different town, really, than the rambunctious one of the late 1760s that we've spent the first part of this podcast talking about. With a calmer Boston, Parliament felt confident enough to press their luck. It passed another tax in May 1773. Oh, I really don't understand this. The colonies have been quiet for three years. Why would they do this and pretty much poke the sleeping bear? I know they can't get out of their own way. And they do this for similar reasons as the Stamp Act was passed in 1765 for financial reasons. The British East India Company, which controlled Great Britain's tea trade, was on the verge of economic collapse. It had a surplus of tea, more than 16 million pounds, rotting in their warehouses. They really should have expanded their ginger sh shandies <laughs> to uh, tea I know, shandies. I know, make some shandies, losers. <laughs> Don't just tax. So in an effort to get rid of the tea, Parliament passed the Tea Act, which required colonists in North America to buy their tea only from the British East India Company. 
I smell Monopoly coming. <laughs> Parliament slashed the price of the company tea to two shillings per pound, which cost less than smuggled Dutch tea. So it would make financial sense for you to buy this British East India Company tea. Parliament then sneakily added a small tax on their tea, three pence a pound, which still made their tea cheaper than their illegal competitors, but the lower price wasn't fooling anyone. Throughout the North American colonies, rebels hated the idea of the Tea Act for two reasons. First, the rebels knew that this reduced price on tea wouldn't last forever. By charging less for East India Company tea, Parliament would drive out competitors, and once they were gone, Parliament could and would increase the price of their tea. I mean, this is kind of obvious. Second, the colonists resented that they would be the ones to bail out the East India Company, an enterprise and problem they felt they had nothing to do with. In fact, they did have nothing to do with it. But then many in Boston had a third reason to resent the Tea Act. Governor Hutchinson and his incestuous family were going to profit from it. Uh-oh, does this mean the moniker Mean Old Tom is coming back? <laughs> You'll have to decide. But I mean, he sort of earns it in this episode, to be honest. He was our key player from episode three, and he had money invested in the East India Company. So he was going to make money when they sold the tea. He's the governor of Massachusetts, and he's going to profit from this tax. This seems like an immense conflict of interest at best, Totally corrupt at worst. I know, I know. And even worse, listen to this, two of Hutchinson's sons were consignees of the tea, which meant they would be personally responsible for collecting the tax and then cashing in on it. Ah, didn't we learn this lesson (laughs) with the Stamp Act? I know, I know. And one of Hutchinson's relatives was also going to profit. Remember, they frequently intermarried to increase their family wealth. A wealthy family headed by Richard Clark was also named consignees. Richard Clark is our key player today. I thought it was time we featured another loyalist as a key player. Are you going to make me like him too? (laughs) I don't know. You can decide. You can decide. He does have some interesting qualities, though. After graduating from Harvard, Clark became a merchant. And by the 1770s, Richard Clark and Sons was one of the largest importers in Massachusetts, which is an impressive rise. Clark was one of those merchants, however, who continued to import in 1769, despite the non-importation agreement. This is like Theophilus Lilly from our last episode. Which I know you remember him because of that amazing name. Amazing name. In addition to big money, Clark had a big family. His wife, Elizabeth Winslow, gave birth to 12 children. One of their daughters, Susanna, married quite well, if not, if not financially or because he had a great personality, but for posterity. In 1769, she accepted the proposal of John Singleton Copley, arguably the finest portrait artist in Boston. We've talked about him a couple times. He's also a pretty big deal. He's a huge deal. We've mentioned him, but we'll talk more about him specifically in this episode. But back to the tax. Obviously, Bostonians want to protest it, but unlike Oliver and the Stamp Act riots eight years earlier, Clark and his sons would not back down as easily from intimidation. Here's an example. On November 2nd, 1773, Richard Clark heard a loud knock on his front door early in the morning. He looked outside and saw two men in his garden. Are we getting a mob straight off the bat this episode? (laughs) I know, it's happening early. But no mob just yet. They had a note for him, Kristen, which instructed Clark to appear at the Liberty Tree at noon the following day to resign his post as tea consignee. Hutchinson's sons had received a similar note earlier that same night. They don't show up, do they? No, Clark may have been stubborn, but he wasn't stupid. He's a no-show. And John Hancock, Joseph Warren, and Samuel Adams all stood around waiting for an hour, along with a crowd of nearly 500 people, (laughs) so embarrassing, waiting for Clark to show, and he didn't. He stood them up. 
Some people were obviously not going to accept this insult. So a group of eight or nine rebels, including street agitator William Molyneux and Dr. Benjamin Church, marched from the Liberty Tree to Clark's warehouse and told him that he had insulted the people by not showing up. You can imagine that Clark didn't care. Molyneux asked Clark to agree not to import the East India Company tea and to also send back any tea if it arrived in Boston. A local newspaper reported Clark refused in, quote, a haughty manner. Molyneux was stunned by the refusal. He really shouldn't have been, but he was. And he threatened Clark with the wrath of Bostonians, saying Clark and his sons would be considered, quote, enemies of the people. I have to say I understand both sides of this. I get the sort of angry mob that's upset about the importation of tea, but I also kind of like Clark here. He's standing up for himself, not allowing this crowd to intimidate him. Yeah, I agree. While this was happening inside, a crowd had gathered outside of Clark's office. Molyneux went out and told the group that Clark would not stop the importation of tea. The mob rushed toward Clark's office, and a few of Clark's employees rushed to try to lock the door. But Kristen... The crowd ripped the door from its hinges and tried to go upstairs. The angry mob was blocked by nearly 20 employees from proceeding up the staircase due to the good fortune of the narrow staircase not being able to hold a crowd of people. Thank you, 18th century architecture. (laughs) I know. No fire codes at this time. This led to a standoff, and after about an hour and a half, the crowd wandered off. Clark had drawn a line. The rebels could not physically or emotionally intimidate him. One newspaper reported that after this encounter, some men, quote, felt personal courage and bodily strength, end quote, to take on the Clarks. So look out, Clarks, I guess. (laughs) And this issue comes to a head on November 17th, 1773, when news arrived that a ship filled with East India Company tea had left London for Boston. With the threat of the tea now more real, it's literally on its way, a mob got busy. Men went to Thomas Hutchinson's house, but no one was home. So the crowd headed to the Clark residence. People were jumping into the mob as it passed through the streets. You'd think this growing mob spells trouble for the Clarks, but we told you they're tough. We're going to have a sip of our tea beer and tell you more after this quick break. If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast, and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. The Clarks had family and friends over to their house that night and were disrupted around 8 o'clock at night by a knock at the door. The Clarks and their guests heard shouting and horns blowing from one to 200 angry men who were in the Clark's garden. And I'm guessing they're not just here to give him a note. I don't think so. I mean, horns blowing after all. The women were escorted upstairs to safety while the men attempted to block the entrances. In these moments of panic and uncertainty, we can imagine that those trapped inside the Clark home remembered the destruction of the homes of Oliver and Hutchinson. Especially scary in this situation is it hasn't happened where one of these violent mobs actually found their targets at home. Oliver and Hutchinson had fled before these angry mobs arrived. It's true. I mean, this would be truly terrifying. And as the mob tried to open the house's locked door, one of Richard Clark's sons went upstairs. He hung his hat out of the window and shouted at the crowd to disperse. The crowd responded by throwing stones at him and his house. The desperate Junior Clark then grabbed a pistol and shot into the crowd. 
This is Shades of Ebenezer Richardson, who we talked about last episode, and if you remember, that didn't end well. Certainly not for 12-year-old Christopher Snyder. Now, luckily here, no one was injured. Clark may have just been a bad shot, but his shooting into the crowd prompted the mob to throw more objects at the house, which broke the home's windows and damaged some of the Clark's furniture. I mean, it made it all the way into the home. Attempting to calm the crowd before it became deadly, some of the leaders reminded the mob that there was a town meeting scheduled for the next morning. They were meeting a lot at this time (laughs) to discuss the Tea Act. There, in a more proper forum, they could once again try to force the Clarks' hand, as well as those of other consignees. So the crowd eventually dispersed. Richard Clark and his sons had shown themselves to be formidable opponents. Good for them. I have to say, this mob is a little out of control. Yeah, they're being brave. I like it. On November 28, 1773, the first ship filled with East India Company tea, called Dartmouth, docked in Boston Harbor. With this, a countdown began. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> because once a ship docked in the colonies, British law required that its cargo be unloaded within 20 days and the required taxes paid. If that didn't happen, customs officials could seize the cargo, where it and the ship would be sold at auction. The rebels then had 20 short days to figure out what to do with the tea. Don't go back to the Clarks, guys. That's just a tip. Uh, Rebel leaders met at one of their favorite spots, the Green Dragon Tavern. You've heard of this before. It's one of Brooke and my faves, and it will be one of yours, too, if you join us on a tour. Yeah. They met there to discuss, well, to have some beer, and then also (laughs) to discuss what to do with the tea and the consignees. Then, more Massachusetts residents met at Faneuil Hall on Monday, November 29th. They really do have a lot of meetings. They love them, and all of the heavy hitters were at this one. Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Joseph Warren, and Benjamin Church. A-list for sure. And then as Faneuil Hall became too crowded, they moved over to the Old South Meeting House because it was the largest building in Boston in the 18th century. Which is funny, by the way, because it's in the financial district now, so you can see it juxtaposed with all these big buildings, and it looks so tiny. (laughs) It's so bonkers how small it is today compared to buildings. But in the 18th century, it was humongous, so it was the ideal location for the larger crowd. On the same day as this large meeting, get this, Richard Clark and his family felt intimidated and afraid enough to move to Castle Island for protection. We talked about Castle Island in episode five. And we played a drinking game where every time you said it, we had to drink. So. Okay, so drink. Huzzah. Huzzah. I always remember those, uh, those games. <laughs> Okay, so the rebels decided the team must be sent back to London immediately. Of course they did. Yeah, I mean, obviously their solution wasn't going to be to pay for the tax on the tea. The person they thought best to target with this request was Francis Roach, the owner of Dartmouth. The group demanded that Roach send the tea back to London. He said he couldn't do that without a pass from the governor, none other than Thomas Hutchinson remember who's going to profit when this tea is landed and sold. So an unlikely person to get some help from. Over the next two weeks, rebel leaders and committees continued to pester both Roach and the consignees to send the tea back or have Hutchinson grant the ships the right to leave. John Singleton Copley, that's the portrait artist who we've mentioned, he also tried to mediate. He even traveled out to Castle Island three times to talk to his in-laws, the Clarks, 
attempting to convince them to come back to Boston and work with the rebels on a solution. More meetings. (laughs) Exactly. Now, John Singleton Copley, it's worth taking a brief pause here because he is such an interesting character. He's a native of Boston, and up until this time in 1773, he had sided with the rebels. He even painted some of our key players, including Mercy Otis Warren, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and Joseph Warren. They're absolutely beautiful portraits. And really lifelike. You can see a lot of the Museum of Fine Arts and other places in Boston. They're they're beautiful to look at. Beautiful. But because he'd married the daughter of a prominent loyalist, he began to sympathize with his family, especially because of the poor treatment they received as a result of the Tea Act. Boston today claims him as a native son, but Copley sailed for London in early 1774, never to return to Boston again. So he wasn't claiming Boston. (laughs) So while we have Copley Square named for him and his work at the Museum of Fine Arts calls him an American artist, he chose to live his life in England, where his artwork also hangs in Buckingham Palace. It's interesting how good art will make Americans forgive him, whereas other loyalists totally did not get off that easy. It's true. It, I, I mean, certainly not as celebrated as Copley. Okay, now back to Boston's desperate situation. That was a good little aside, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. He, I find him fascinating. Okay, so we've got this desperate situation and two things are making it worse. Two more ships carrying East India Company tea, Beaver and Eleanor, arrived in Boston Harbor. Worse... New York and Philadelphia were dubious about Boston's commitment to resist the Tea Act. Listen to this. Both cities had intimidated their tea agents into resigning, which, as we know, hadn't worked here in Boston with the Clarks. A taunt from Philadelphia was printed in the Boston Gazette on December 13th, 1773. It's amazing. It reads, quote, Our tea consignees have all resigned, and you need not fear. The tea will not be landed here or at New York. All that we fear is that you will shrink at Boston. Dang, Philly. Tough talk, given that Boston's leading this whole thing. I know. Where's the brotherly love, (laughs) Philly? Okay, meanwhile, the clock is ticking. Philly taunts aside. We can't even be bothered with their trolling because with every day that passed, colonists were getting closer to that 20-day deadline, December 17th, and they were nowhere closer to a resolution, even with all these meetings and Copley trying to mediate. So on December 16th, The day before Boston's deadline to unload the tea, a crowd gathered at Old South Meeting House. Samuel Adams later estimated that 5,000 men showed up. It was not just people from Boston. People from the surrounding countryside also came, and they were all waiting for the arrival of one man, Francis Roach. He had agreed to travel to Hutchinson's country house in Milton, Massachusetts. Must be nice. Yeah, by the way, do you notice that he's safely away from the drama in Boston? He traveled there to ask one final time for the governor's permission for Dartmouth to leave the harbor. And from this safe distance, Hutchinson refused. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. This is where you would get the mean old Tom. I mean, I'm sympathetic to him, but like this is a real jerk move when there's really no reason for it. Anyway, Roach brings back word to Old South Meeting House around six that Hutchinson had refused the request. Samuel Adams stood to make a pivotal speech as he proclaimed that, quote, this meeting can do no more to save the country, end quote. Shouts were heard from outside as people cried out, rally Mohawks. WTF. I know. We haven't used that term before, but this was actually the signal for rebels to head down to the harbor. Gotcha. The crowd inside began shouting, Boston Harbor, a teapot tonight. And a number of people then huzzahed in the streets. I'll drink to that. Huzzah! Huzzah! (laughs) 
It was a lively and festive crowd. We love them. The crowd's excitement grew as many of them headed toward the waterfront. They reached Griffin's Wharf where the three ships were docked. Only about 20 to 30 men. By the way, if you don't know where this is going, it's going to the Boston Tea Party. (laughs) Um, Spoiler! Only only about 20 to 30 men had been invited to participate in the destruction of the tea. We know it today as the Boston Tea Party, but at that time, and for at least a generation, it was simply just called the destruction of the tea. But other men got caught up in the moment and joined in. So about 150 men participated in total. Some of the names of the participants you'd recognize. Ebenezer McIntosh. Key player from episode one. Yep, he was there. Sammy Gore. Who was shot by Ebenezer Richardson back in 1770. He was there. And how about Paul Revere? We haven't talked much about him yet, (laughs) but I'm fairly confident y'all know who he is. Yeah, you guys know his name. Bigger names like Hancock, Samuel Adams, Joseph Warren, they were way too famous to participate and risk potentially getting caught. Now, the Boston Tea Party differed from previous mob violence in Boston because the mob was not set on rampant, uncontrollable violence. By the way, I'm about to destroy the rest of this tea beer here. (laughs) The destruction of the tea was a highly orchestrated affair. The participants were orderly and assigned into one of three groups, each one which would board a ship. The men spent the next two to three hours using their tomahawks or hatchets to smash open 342 chests of tea before tossing them overboard. This wasn't easy work either. The full-size chests weighed approximately 400 pounds. Now, I remember that mohawk was a rallying cry, but did these guys actually dress up as Native Americans? Like many historical myths, there is some truth here, but it's mostly inaccurate. The men who'd been invited to participate in the destruction of the tea had fairly complete Native American disguises. That's why Rally Mohawks was the cry. But the men who spontaneously joined in, that's like the 120, 130 others, had not prepared elaborate disguises. They improvised, this is sort of pathetic, but they improvised by covering their faces with soot, grease, and lamp black, and then some simply draped themselves in blankets. (laughs) It also wasn't a covert top secret affair, as you may imagine. There were between one and 2,000 people who watched the unloading of the tea. This is totally a spectator event. Yeah, they're all watching in plain view, but then after the tea was dumped and there was nothing left to see or do, the spectators and the participants walked home and a quiet settled over Boston the next day. They must have been hungover from that party. (laughs) As could be expected, Boston didn't stay calm for long, as Parliament soon drops a hammer on Boston, which we'll cover in the next episode. And stay with us till the end of this episode to hear what we'll be drinking next. As you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking you'd like to learn more about this subject? We have a couple easy suggestions. This podcast is based on a book I wrote, Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. I love the subtitle. It's a really accessible read and also features key players, so you'll feel right at home reading it. Kristen and I are also part of a fabulous team of historian tour guides for Yule Tavern Tours. So join one of our tours for local craft beers, talk of revolutionary Boston, and seeing historic sites along Boston's Freedom Trail. We also have short videos on Yield Tavern Tours' website called History in a Minute. They feature lots of the people and historic sites we mentioned today and throughout this podcast. We'll link to all of those in the show notes. 
Next episode, we'll be drinking the Dog and Pony Show from Notch Brewing. Our key player is going to have some trouble executing his orders, but he's a loyalist. So we can sip our beer on the sidelines and watch it all unfold. Join us as beer makes history.